the consequence of all of that is that we feel like we're getting more done. Uh, but in reality, it's as you, as you articulated it, we're really getting more output and less outcomes. And I think the reality is that value comes from delivering those outcomes. So doing fewer things. On today's show, we've got Bob Pisani, the VP and Head of Data Engineering at Adapa. He's joining us from New York. We're talking all about hybrid models and different experiences and how do you balance people's experiences whilst trying to build a team environment. And we're also asking whether our organizations have put output over outcomes. And does value come from doing fewer things? So this is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, today joined by Haley, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you some technology news. Joining me today from the office, which feels appropriate with the conversation we've got coming up, given that I'm at home, we've got Haley. How are you? Yes, very well, thank you. How, very how is the office? Very quiet, but actually a little quite nice. But I do feel like since you've been home for a long time, there is quite a few distractions in the office. Well, I have to say, I, I, I find it hilarious that you're wearing a blazer. You look very smart. I mean, I know, but blazer and jeans, so it's not that smart. I mean, not as smart as we usually rock up. I was a bit... I can't confused. really remember. <laughs> I don't. I, I, all my work shoes got, got thrown out. I need to buy some new ones. So I was like, oh, it's casual it is today then. No smart. Oh, yeah, but you could, if you've got jeans on, you could definitely go with like white trainers and a jacket. I wish I was wearing trainers and got boots on. It's a bit hot, to be honest. Oh, my God, we're talking yeah. about an outfit like it matters. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone, you probably really don't care about the fact that I've got boots on. And it's well, I don't know. I, it's funny, though, isn't it, right? We've been at home for a year wearing whatever, and then all of a sudden there is that thing that you go into the office and therefore you should somehow dress differently yeah it was it was hard this morning i was like what do i wear <laughs> am i gonna get told off for being casual so really did that actually cross your mind yeah it did that's bizarre bizarre indeed no never mind anyway what's london like out of interest for anyone listening this is this is just me now hijacking the podcast for my own curiosity yeah, so actually, surprisingly busy. Trains were quite busy as well. Mm. I didn't actually get a seat at first, which I was upset about on the train. Jesus. Um, right, okay. But, and yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, we work in like near Liverpool Street Station, don't we? And it was it was a bit quieter towards this end, but London Bridge was was looked back to normal. So that then, I'm not coming back in for a while. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about <laughs> hybrid environments and teams finding their own ways to work with Adapar. So Bob is our guest. We'll hand over to the interview, then we'll come back with some commentary afterwards. So today I'm talking to Bob Pisani uh, from Adapar. Good morning. You're over in the States. Whereabouts in the States are you? Uh, good morning, David. Uh, great to be here. Yeah, I'm based in New York. Ah, right. How, how is New York in the spring? I, I, New York either seems, from my, my British perception of being a little bit distant from it, either really cold or really hot. You know, certain springs uh, give us either a little bit of uh, great weather and we feel like we're really almost at summer uh, and we're ready to get there pretty quickly. Or sometimes it feels like it can still snow and you're just going to get out there and you still need to bundle up. So this spring's actually been, I'd say, somewhere in the middle. A little more mild, so we're really enjoying the nice weather. Spring-like. Oh, look, good yeah. for you. It's, it's flipping horrendous over here, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Anyway, uh, look, very quickly, who are Adapar and what do you do for them? 
Uh, so let's see. So Adapar is a wealth management platform that uh, provides data aggregation and reporting and analytics for its customers. So who are Adapar's customers? Adapar's customers are uh, what we call registered investment advisors, family offices, and other uh, investors and high net worth individuals who ultimately come to uh, Adapar looking for a solution that can give them the insights and the ability to really understand how their portfolios and their investments are performing and to actually see things in a very unique way that other platforms just can't provide. And I think that the way we do that is incredibly dynamic, incredibly responsive, very, very fast. We're able to do it at scale. And uh, I think that's what really separates us from everyone else. As far as my role, uh, I'm the VP of data engineering here at Adapar. Uh, been here uh, for you know only about four months, but I'm really excited to be here and focus and, and own on all things data. Uh, so we can talk about any aspect of that, uh, you know, you think is interesting. How was starting a new role uh, during this winter, during this pandemic winter? How has that been? You know, uh, I was very uh, concerned at first because I thought, wow, how am I going to make an impact? How am I going to really uh, have my presence known inside a company when I'm coming in and joining at a, a senior role like this? But Adapar was fantastic and how it was able to onboard uh, everyone, not just myself. And I really felt like I was actually onboarded as opposed to just sort of being thrown in a corner and told, all right, here's a bunch of documentation and just kind of fend for yourself. Everyone made a tremendous amount of time for me. They really spent a lot of time helping me to understand where the company was, where we're going, its challenges, what, it, uh, what we're looking to accomplish, and really made me feel part of the company and part of the team. And I really, really uh, enjoyed that because, you know, I had come from AWS prior and I was working remotely there and that felt much more distant. Um, and it didn't feel like I was really part of a team, whereas here I really do. It kind of um, leads us quite neatly into one of the things that I know you're keen to talk about, which is the right way to build teams. Um, I suppose that's been a challenge, right, for organizations working out how to integrate staff in this period of time and then also now looking beyond the pandemic i don't want to say post-pandemic because i don't think that's necessarily the right turn of phrase but certainly beyond the pandemic when we're returning to a hybrid working environment where some people will be there and more present than others physically kind of getting that balance right is going to be a bit of a challenge yeah um definitely uh so before pandemic uh we had remote work we all you know everyone there was working remotely and even i had done a little bit of a, myself. However, the assumption was that you were still gonna be rooted in that office experience. Um, I think the flexibility that we're gonna be able to now offer to employees is fantastic. Uh, not just for fully remote employees, which we actually begun to hire um, quite uh, aggressively, but also the fact that now everyone who previously worked in office can now split their time moved to a hybrid model. Um, it is going to be challenging because when you're fully remote and everyone is, is so, then it's easy to sort of coordinate meetings because then, oh, everyone's in front of a computer, they're in front of a camera, no worries. But when you're in an office or, or part of your team is in an office and part is not, then you have to make the time to do the old conference room, let's book it, let's get in front of a room, let's make time for that to happen. Whereas the other people who are in the office are having a different experience. And they really have that experience of the organic and, and spontaneous conversations that occur inside of an office space, which to me is one of those advantages. Mm. So kind of how do you balance that? 
And uh, I think it takes a lot of intentionality. I think it makes a, you have to make a big commitment to information sharing and transparency, which is one of the ways that, frankly, teams are incredibly successful because it builds that trust. And if the one thing we have to, not if, but one thing we really, really need to guard against is the fact that you can have this sort of bimodal operation where all of, a, all of a sudden you have the part of the team that's in the office really get, getting close knit and working tightly together. And then the remote team still feels remote, but they start to actually move away and feel less integrated with the team. So we have to be really, really conscious of using all forms of communication, whether it's Slack and yes, even email and, uh, and, and video calls and everything else to really make them feel integrated, which is in the same, in one way, no different than the way it was before where we had remote people working, just less of them. But now that we have more, we're really, really conscious of it. And uh, and also find a way for them to feel integrated in that spontaneous culture that you get that crops up when you're sitting in an office. So getting them, I think, in the office at least part of the time, making an effort to visit different offices and really spend time with others is going to be crucial to really have building that close-knit team. Do you think there's a case that oh, – I was talking to someone who's who's – uh, in a company that's quite keen for staff to return to the office. Um, but so far, all their meetings are continued via Zoom, despite being in the office. Do you think there's a case that even if we do go back in an office, actually, it's more inclusive to say, you know what, we're not going to use the, meet the, the meeting rooms. They will be for very specific occasions. Maybe we've got an internal guest coming in and everyone is present. But actually, for internal meetings, where we might have people in a number of different locations, we're not going to have three, four people in a room and other people dialing in. We'll all just remain on Zoom. Or whatever you know, it might be, teams, et cetera. Oh, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the teams, or actually two of the teams I had previously at a, at a prior shop, um, did that. And it was it was originally quite odd because they would sit there and uh have headphones on, they'd be sitting at their desks meeting because uh one or two of their members was remote. Uh I would opt for optionality in this case, where I'd say, listen, I want each team to kind of find their own dynamic because everyone is different. And I don't want to impose uh, a certain structure. I think some teams uh, yield better communication in person. Uh, some some are okay on on uh, you know Zoom or, or video calls, but I think the team has to find its own its own balance because I found that they the team will succeed when given that autonomy and that ability to kind of define its own working style. And I think that's important as well because, you know, the one-size-fits-all culture you tend to see in larger organizations really doesn't work. Mm. And, I think, you know, being a startup and, and having that ability to not only, to, you know, provide that, that flexibility, but also the ability to experiment is part of our culture and really what we want to achieve here is that we want to allow people to feel like, you know what, I have a better idea. And we have a, one of our values is, you know, best idea wins. And I think that that's important here because we want to make sure that, People don't feel like, oh, I have to do this and I have no say. Whereas I want to allow, you know, a more federated model where each team feels like they have ability, not just in communication, I'm, I'm going beyond that, but in terms of communication, working style, cadence, everything, I want each team to feel like they have the ability to kind of define, decide what's the best way to work for them. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, in your role as VP of, of data engineering, um, I suppose traditionally you could say that engineering was done in a bit of a silo. Um, not the way of the modern world, though. And we're, we're desperate uh, to, to make sure that, that organizations continue to collaborate and communicate effectively. How do you run both product and engineering organizations to make sure that they do work and align? 
so this really gets you, you know I could talk about agile software development and 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 that and you know because that really I think reinforces the context but um, you know ultimately the idea here is that um, product and engineering in, in Adapar is considered one organization so we are collectively known as R and D so we're research and development and at Adapar uh, we have strong alignment between each engineering team and a product manager so that now uh, and within data engineering this is obviously the case. So that each team understands clearly who their product manager is and therefore their product owner in an agile sense. So that now we actually don't have this, uh, you know, throw it over the wall mentality or, or this idea of, uh, you know, I'm just being handed a set of requirements or a document. That's not the interface. That's not the API. Um, you know, as organizational APIs go, I'm not a fan of that. I'm a fan of mechanisms that create mm. process and procedure, but not a fan of the fact that um, everything has to pass through that, particularly when it comes to teams. So just the idea, you know, I want product managers and engineering leads and teams to feel like they're part of the same team. And we're working towards the same goal because what it comes down to is what are we doing here? We have engineers, and we have products, but ultimately we're, we're, we're serving a customer. And, you know, to, to borrow from Amazon, you know, work, work, for the, work backwards from the customer. Uh, that's really crucial here because I think that's often what gets lost for engineering teams. We, we don't understand who our customer is. And fundamentally, it's so important to understand why we're building what we're building. What value are we delivering to our customers? And with, by the way, whether a customer is external or the customer is internal, it doesn't matter. You need to know that. And that's why product helps to reinforce all of that and why it's so crucial that product and engineering have such a strong alignment. So for me, I make it clear that I'm not the gatekeeper of anything. You know, product works directly with each of my teams. I'm not sitting there and actually saying, all right, you come through me and then I kind of let work trickle down. It's very much a, you know, a, a cross-functional world of product and engineering who ultimately decides how things get done. How do you, how do you kind of instigate change in an organization? You know, what, what, what are the strategies that, that have worked? Because we, we've gone through this period where we've talked about rapid digitization of organizations and, you know, we've seen technologies that, and maybe they were already rolled out, but they hadn't really been widely adopted, and they're suddenly being adopted and used. Um, I suppose there could be um, a slight risk for an organization. They could build up quite a lot of legacy accidentally very, very quickly at the moment. Um, so how, how do you think that you do work through that and make sure that actually when you're, when you're changing the culture of, say, products and engineering, that it's done in a complementary way? Um, I think it speaks to, to something I, I mentioned earlier, which is the idea of experimentation. Um, yeah. I think yeah. companies all too often make really big bets. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think of my, uh, I think it's Jim Collins, Good to Great, where, you know, you fire bullets, then fire cannonballs. The idea is that we really need to really focus on trying things first. You know, it's, it's again, the fail fast culture, that kind of concept. But it's really about a culture of experimentation where whether, you know, in particular, we're talking about new technology and transformation in, in the same breath you're really looking at the fact that there's so much, not only digital digitization, but there's this idea that, well, AI ML will solve every problem. We need data lakes, we need automation everywhere. And I definitely think that that's all true. The question is, how do you actually execute that? Because, you know, as, as I've heard many people say, ideas are easy, execution is everything. And I think that's true of every transformation. And the way I've always approached that in that spirit of ex experimentation is that you have to focus on changing things in an evolutionary fashion. I think things that I've seen not work or, or not be successful is when you have a revolutionary change. You say, all right, we're gonna cut over to a big new system. We're gonna change our entire technology base. 
you know, the problem with that is that it's too much of a step function. And it's, it, you know, the idea is, you know, agile, right? We want to deliver incrementally. We want to deliver in small units. So we're always delivering value to the customer. Well, that's true of transformation and change. Our internal customers, you know, our executive leadership wants to see improvement, wants to see value created as a result of any sort of change or transformation. And whether you're experimenting with new technology or you're changing an organization, you have to do it in such a way that you actually get value along the way, which is more of that, you know, you smooth out those ups and downs in that line, as opposed to waiting for the big step function, such an on day, on some day you'll decide, hey, now you're going to get all this value, assuming that we got everything right when we first started this endeavor. And that's true of technology, it's true of transformation. Uh, you know, I have a team right now who's working on integrating machine learning into one of our uh, feeds processing uh, pipelines. We're doing an experiment. We're doing a proof of concept. That's how you do it. We don't say, oh, we're going to change over our entire infrastructure now to do data processing via machine learning. We're, we're learning as we go. And to me, that's the way you, you make change happen and you make change digestible for those who are being subject to it because otherwise they feel like, oh my God, things are changing too rapidly. I can't actually understand this as we go. And they want to feel part of it as well. And being and allowing people to in, interact, but also give feedback along the way is true of customers, but also true of, of the team. And they want to feel part of it. And I think that's really, really crucial because it wants to feel like this wasn't done to them. They want to be, feel like it's being done with them. And that's, I think, a really, really important difference. Picking up on that theme of something happening to them rather than, than being part of that process, there's been a big shift from uh, outcome-based work to output and we've created a lack of focus um there's there's there, there does seem to be you know remote working it is flexible and it does offer a lot of benefits but the blurred lines between when you put your laptop away and when you switch off and the amount that we're asking people to do there's there's a bit of danger there right uh I will admit that even you know being here at Adapar I've often felt on many days like I'm always at work you know there's no separation yeah. And, and, you know, sort of being able to close the laptop, shut the system down, uh, leave the office, catch a train, whatever it may be, that no longer exists today. Um, and I think that you're, you, the consequence of all of that is that we feel like we're getting more done. Uh, but in reality, it's as you, as you articulated it, we're really getting more output and less outcomes. And I think the reality is that value comes from delivering those outcomes. So doing fewer things. And I think this is fundamental. You know, when we, we went through our last round of OKR planning uh, here at Adapar, and we were very, very prescriptive about limiting the number of OKRs, focusing on the highest priority items, really understanding that what the things we're, we're building on and delivering had the most value for a customer, uh, had the most value internally to Adapar in terms of advancing the architecture and the infrastructure. And it, that's so hard to do when you're in, in, a, in the endless meeting environment and feeling like, wow, I can't have more time. But the fact is you can spend more time on, on so many more things, but if you're just not doing nothing with time slicing, there's so much opportunity cost in just the switching itself that you really lose time and really lose momentum in building all those things. So I'd rather us focus on fewer things, even in a remote environment, but it's not easy. And it's something I know that even at Adapar we can improve upon. Well, look, I, I think it's been super interesting to talk to you today. I'm sure that that concept of maybe focusing on fewer things is something that a lot of leaders can take back into their environments. I hope they do. Um, but uh, thanks.
for all of your time this morning. And I hope you have a lovely day over there in New York. David, it was great. Thank you so much. This is a real pleasure. I really enjoyed myself. Right. Towards the end of the interview, he talks about output, not outcomes, and the value that comes from doing fewer things. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, because that, to me, struck a real chord. Well, I guess it, it, it makes sense, really. If you do less things, but you're able to focus on them, but with more, you've got more time to spend on those things, then surely you should actually have a better outcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my eyes, that makes sense. I mean, when you're trying to juggle a million and one things, yeah, you can do it. But are you really focusing your time properly on, properly on every single element? So if you are focusing on fewer things, then surely, I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement with it, to be honest with you. I mean, so many of us have got, like, a lot of people will work in roles these days where the client wants, you know, they want to put every possible aspect and, and, and technology on a job spec, right? And the person, the candidate reads the job spec and they're like, wow, there's a lot in this role. It's like two people's jobs. Mm. So obviously, like, people are trying to cut back and, and they are trying to find more all-round people. Um, but actually, it, it, I mean, what you're going to get out of that person, I don't know, uh, it's not going to be as good as it would if it was, like, like you say, it's focusing on less do you think being back in the office today that you'll actually do less but be more productive? I was just saying this actually. I feel like I've got a lot of distractions now. <laughs> I was I was getting quite distracted, but I'm like I'm like all earwigging on people's conversations, looking at who's just coming. I feel like I'm surrounded by distractions. So I do think, but it is also nice to have that social element, especially in our job. Um, but. I think a hybrid model is definitely needed because sometimes you do just need no distractions, but then it makes me feel a bit antisocial even thinking like that. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Like he, he talks a lot in that um, uh, interview that, that it's about offering flexibility um, and yeah. that there has to be a, a, an effort to visit offices and spend time with others. You know, you say you, say you don't want to be antisocial. That, that's really important. Like, Team building is based on the principle that you actually know the people that you work with and you have personal relationships with them. And that is very hard to do over Zoom. But at the same time, I can really see this challenge between trying to build a culture where some people are in the office, some people are at home, they don't always overlap. It was very easy when we were all in the same place five days a week overlapping with each other. Yeah, it's definitely easier to build a relationship that way. Um, but I do genuinely believe that this is that the pandemic has changed a lot of things. It's, before we was all kind of making do with a one size fits all, but it, the reality is it isn't a one size fits all. I mean, everyone has different priorities in their life, whether it be childcare, just a general at home, what they need to do. And I think before, I think a lot of people were feeling a bit rushed off their feet. Um, mm. I mean, I even felt like it sometimes. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've got to get home. I've got to do this, 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 and this. And then sometimes, like when you work from home, it's a bit like, actually, you can calm, you can chill, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. I don't need to rush and and get that done, or you know. So I definitely do think it, it's just an element of of having that flexibility and also the freedom to kind of. I think it's like everyone just wants to kind of be treated like an adult. You can manage your time effectively mm. yourself. Um, we, we should be able to do that at a, at a minimum. 
Um, and, and just being given that is is the most important thing to an employer, I think. Um, I think if you give people that, and it was like what happened um, when the lady at NASA, she was speaking about it. She said, I don't care what my employees are doing as long as they're getting the work done. I said, I don't, she just like, I don't care. And I think that that is so true. Um, and I think that that's really important. And I think that that will just build a better team in general because no one's yeah. going to feel under pressure or, you know, or, or under the farm or micromanaged. So, um, yeah, I definitely do believe that that is, if you are working remotely, giving that freedom is going to, I feel like I'm going around the houses, you're going to build a better team. <laughs> We've got there. For, any, the for, for anyone listening who's unsure, Haley's referring there to uh, our interview with Dr. Crystal Johnson. Video interview, it's on, uh, it was part of In Conversation With, it's on harveynashgroup.com. And actually, we will come back to that, Haley. Uncanny that you brought it up. But Ooh. very quickly, uh, change is digestible by making changes as we go the team needs that as much as customers they have to feel that it's being done with them not to them that's i think that's really important as well we often think about making changes and, and its impact you know obviously organizations are customer centric but um sometimes you know you, you you have to consider that maybe first of all your customers are internal but equally a team needs to have smaller digestible chunks rather than sudden changes thrust upon them. And I think in the pandemic, we've all had sudden changes thrust upon us. So now coming out the other side, actually taking it step by step and not rushing into one situation or another is is really important. Yeah, no, I like that when he said that about he it was about getting the team feedback, working with them being them being part of the process I think that that is such another important point going back to what we were just discussing mm. um if you do make people feel like that they're a part of it they don't feel necessarily like you're the boss I'm the employee I feel yep. like I'm working with you and we're, we're doing this together I think it's a really important thing um and what was your other point then as well just in terms of the fact that that, that we've have so so many big changes thrust upon us that yeah. we've now you know the, the changes have got us got to be small going going back yeah definitely because i think i think we've already gone through that and i think people are starting to get used to this new normal now aren't they and it, for it to just go imagine if it just went straight back to normal i think people would be like whoa could you imagine <laughs> i don't know yeah. how i'd feel get back in the office five days a week work eight till six and don't leave your desk <laughs> I know it would be a bit. It would be a bit much. Be a few, be right. a few levers. <laughs> Bob, thank you for your time. Uh, Haley, you mentioned NASA. As I said, a bit uncanny. Quick bit of technology news before we go. Um, it can't have escaped anyone's attention that uh, humans managed to fly a helicopter on Mars for the first time this week. Uh, Dr. Crystal Johnson mentioned um, uh, humans being on Mars, living on Mars within fifty years' time. Uh, when I interviewed her for In Conversation With. And I also found this this little stat really interesting. This popped up on my Twitter feed. The oldest person in the world was alive during the first flight by the Wright brothers and is now alive when we first fly a vehicle on another planet, which is nuts. What? Yeah, that is nuts. I feel like that was quite a lot of information in my head, but it still feels sad. <laughs> <nuts>. Um <laughs> So the person is still alive now. Who was alive when, when humans made the first successful air flight plane and now the first time that we've flown something on another planet. And if anyone is, is, is unsure what? about this, 
Percy, the Perseverance rover, um, the cameras captured and posted to Twitter um, the image of basically the copter, which lifted 10 feet off the ground for 39 seconds, making it the first flight of a powered craft on another planet, which is frankly incredible. Yeah, mind-blowing, actually. Yeah. What it's, it's, I just think, wow, and I just get really freaked out a bit actually by this whole, this all this NASA and space talk and you know Elon Musk stuff. I think, oh my gosh, like this is actually happening. Like they're talking about us going to Mars. We're actually going to go to Mars. <laughs> it's it's just it's just incredible that we've we've managed to kind of make that progress. Yeah, but, like if, uh, yes. If you let your mind go there and you start thinking like, wow, we're we're on a planet, we can fly around the planet and go on holiday but actually we can fly out of the planet and go to another one yeah it kind of (laughs) well if we can do that we should be able to sort some shit out at home closer to home but anyway if anyone wants to watch it um on twitter at nasa jpl uh, jet propulsion lab short for uh you can watch the the historic flight there lovely dovey look Hayley, thank you very much for your time on today's show and we will be back at the end of the week (laughs) 